0: Alright, I am now joined by Bronco Marketic from Jacobin Magazine. Uh, how are you doing, Bronco?
1: I've been uh i you know, uh, staring at the potential of you know, everything.
0: You know, other than that, everything's fine.
1: Other than that, tiny little
0: tiny little problem. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, I think you're Breaking up just a little bit on on my end. Okay.
1: Uh, yeah, you've kind of been breaking up from me as well, but if It's my internet. Uh, uh, let me
0: uh, turn my computer, uh, confuse Wi-Fi off. Okay, okay. Sounds, sounds good. Uh, yeah, while you're sorting that out, let's. Um, we've, we've got a couple of questions that've been waiting. Oh, let's sure. uh, let's take one from uh, from Matthew.
2: Hi. Uh, Can you guys hear me? Yep. Yeah. So overall, I've been uh, quite distraught by the coverage of this of this uh, invasion, this crime by Putin um, in the press and also among the alt media and the left and and so forth. I I just I, I think that the level of ignorance about the basic facts of the thing, like, look, obviously dramatically escalating a war. Um, using imperialistic, um, revanchist language to justify, in part, um, killing thousands, um, many thousands, most likely, when this is over a million refugees. This is unjustifiable. But it, it does, I feel like people on the left should be doing a better job pointing out the context of this, which is the war did not begin two weeks ago. It did not, it's been going on for eight years. And the, I think I, 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 the husband I pulled on this, but I feel like the percentage of Americans who <laughs> would be aware of that basic fact, it would be vanishingly small that they think the war started two weeks ago, whereas Putin radically escalated a war that has been going on mm. in secessionist regions of, of this country. And uh, another thing that I think uh, there's been a little bit of discussion about this, but should should be far more. And I think, again, the left should be leading the way on this is the suffering of not just Ukrainian civilians, which has been highlighted commendably and should be highlighted more, of course, but Russian civilians are just uh, with a- any range of views on this are just being decimated by, by international sanctions. My, my, my uh, partner is actually Russian and she is very much opposed to this war, but <laughs> then she, uh, you know, with her VPN looks at what us media is saying. And they're like on the Colbert show, for example, the audience is just giddy about how Russians are in food lines and, right. you know, people are having to really tighten their belts there isn't starvation yet but it's there's a lot of suffering and destruction of of lifetime accumulated wealth so I just think that the nuance of this word the fact that it isn't it, what putin does is absolutely criminal unjustifiable in, in invading the whole country but that there was a context in which he did this it should be emphasized and also the suffering of the Russian people should be emphasized so of course again people we, well, like, it's stupid though like we shouldn't have to uh, say 50 times too that we're against this. Of course, like any human, hu- moderately humane person, opposes this, right? Right. So you know, I, I just think that alt media has has not emphasized again those. And I'll let like, you respond. Those two things, though the the suffering of the of the Russian civilians and the and, and under the sanctions one. Uh, also, rising Russophobia in the West, uh, insane Russophobia, and then finally um, the the context of the war that's been raging for eight years, and thousands of civilians have been killed by Ukraine with our weapons, you know, in these secessionist regions. So, go ahead and, and reply to these criticisms. And I'm not personalizing it to you, Ben. I'm just saying, generally speaking, I think I, I'm disappointed that alt media and left media has not emphasized this issue more. Go ahead and, and
0: yeah, I mean, it'd be kind of fun if you were personalizing it to me because. Uh, you know 99.9 no, percent of uh criticism that i've gotten of what i've said on this topic has been from the other direction but um that uh you know that that i'm a uh Putin apologist because i think the invasion was bad but also other things are, are true and relevant but uh but bronco uh do you want to uh do you want to speak to either half of that
1: yeah sure um I mean, I, I agree with everything you said. Um, I guess, in terms of what the the alt media should be doing, I mean, I don't know. Maybe, maybe this is my own distorted view uh, of what I'm reading. I, I've read a lot of really uh, good, clear writing uh, about this on on alt media, on left media. Um, you know, it, the problem is that that we are a very small part of the media ecosystem that that does not get that much oxygen and it were you know we're trying our best you know Jacobin you have a look at stuff written about Ukraine it's uh it's you know we've we've highlighted the the plight of russians who are hit by sanctions and, and said that you know these broad ranging sanctions not the targeted kind that mm-hmm. goes after the elite but the ones that are just kind of collective punishment are both inhuman and also potentially counterproductive kind of if they if they kind of kill whatever anti-war uh, feeling exists in mm, Russia. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've, we've talked about, you know, um, I'll, I'll admit maybe not so much in the intervening years, you know, in, in the years before this, but in the, in the lead up to this war and since, um, I think we've published quite a lot of stuff on Ukraine. Um, but again, we're drowned out by the fact that what do people most, how do people consume their news most? They consume it through TV, uh, unfortunately. Uh, both local right. TV and cable TV. And you know what? The irony is uh, uh, there's an outlet, uh, an independent Russian outlet called uh, Medusa, and they wrote about a recent survey of Russians uh, about this war. And, and one of the things they point out was that uh, Russian, the older you go in, in, in the survey, the more pro-war the, the Russian population is, and also the more TV they watch. The younger you go, the less pro-war they are and the more internet they consume, for, for their use. And mm-hmm. that is basically the exact, um, you'll, you'll find a similar, I think, um, uh, uh, a poll uh, that was done recently in, in the U.S. about who supports kind of war or sort of military intervention more to, to stop this, and it, it's the older crowd that's up there. And, of course, we know from umpteen different uh, surveys and everything, that, that the older older you go in the U.S., the more people consume TV, and it's the younger crowd who, who tends to rely on the internet. And so, um, you know, uh, unfortunately, these uh, TV is the, is the number one most powerful and effective propaganda medium that exists, um, and it's very difficult to battle, um, but we're trying, we're trying. So I, I, I agree, I think there should be more of it. Uh perhaps perhaps I'm blinded by my own biases and I can't see that, that you know is not, not going as far as it could, but I i personally I feel like I've seen the stuff I'm reading, uh some of the best stuff has been on old media, uh, including Jack. Just to just to plug the, the magazine there.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I I that all that all sounds right. That's a really interesting point about the poll results. Um I think that... You know, I think what you said about the sanctions is is important. You know that I've I've spent a while thinking about this. This is, in fact, why I think that uh, whataboutism, at least you know, not the technical definition, which is raising whatabout questions to deflect from the wrongness of of what you know your side is doing, but. Um, in practice, what everybody means about what, by whataboutism, which is just raising whatabout questions at all, uh, when when they want to have all of the uh, uh, focus, you know, on what enemies are doing. Uh, but why I think whataboutism is actually a moral imperative because they, you know, it. I think it's incredibly useful to force yourself to think about like, okay, if there was some other power that was in a position to do much of anything along these lines, what would I have wanted that to do to the United States in 2003? Mm. And, you know, certainly if the response was to seize some yachts and free some assets from, you know, Donald Rumsfeld and Dick Cheney and some executives at Halliburton, you know, I, I, you know, I would have been for that. Uh, you know, but, uh, but if I think about like Biden's State of the Union where he was doing these applause lines about the collapse of the Russian economy, you know, the, the rubles declined 30% and this and that, the other thing. Uh, that would be a pretty disturbing thing to to hear. I mean, if you were, you know, like st- like actually in the country he was talking about standing in line for food, et cetera, as just an ordinary person who has even less input into their country's foreign policy than we do,
2: yeah, yeah, I mean yeah. it's. It, and another thing I would I would re- briefly mention is, I think that the rhetoric of the West has really. Uh, this is anecdotal. I don't have empirical evidence. I just have, you know, visited Russia many times and have loved one her family there. But anecdotally, just talking to these folks I know, um, is it, it does seem that the stupidity, first of all, and the falsehood and the cruelty of the Western reaction to Russians and the characterization of the war has demoralized a lot of Russian anti war sentiment because the Russian anti war sentiment is qualified because they know what's happened in Donbass. They know Russians have been killed for many years, right? They're they're going it's going to have to be qualified because they just know too much to have a straightforward view. So when you already have this qualified anti-war sentiment, anti-Putin sentiment, when the people you're trying to align with, namely like an international anti-war movement is celebrating, you know, your grandmother's bank account, bank, as, assets being throws, frozen in her bank account, that that's highly demoralizing, you know?
1: Yeah, and, and I think also uh, kind of leads... The, the people of, of Russia, or the people of any country that, that is being brutalized this way to, to uh, kind of depend more on their leader, and also it then becomes it, it gives the leader a chance to go, well i 'm not the bad guy, not the, the guy who <laughs> set this in motion by doing this making this disastrous uh, decision to, to invade this country that none of you had any quarrel with. Uh, it's not my fault. The, 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 I'm not the one that you should be angry at. It's the it's the villainous West. They uh they are basically besieging your country. They are starving you, they uh depriving you of medicine and, and they're the real problem. And that, you know, a similar thing happened in um in in Serbia in the late nineties where the uh the anti Milosevic uh, movement was, was basically um really uh killed or, you know, at the really dampened uh, by the NATO bombing because suddenly, you know, it wasn't this kleptocratic strongman that was the issue. It was these other countries that were dropping bombs on, on your cities um, and, and, and killing people that you knew. That, that was the bigger priority. Um, and so I, I do worry, I mean, there's, there's been a really substantial outpouring of, of anti-war sentiment in Russia, um, you know, definitely the, the invasion of Crimea was pretty, uh, or the annexation of Crimea was pretty widely, uh, supported, uh, within Russia. Um, uh, obviously very, very different kind of set of circumstances, but, but, um, whereas this, you know, there was a, there's been a lot of, even a pre-establishment voices in Russia who've kind of spoken up and said, let's, let's not do this. Um, and that, that may all evaporate, uh, if, if, you know, um, if if these sanctions, if we sort of take this very kind of indiscriminate approach to to, to punishing uh, Putin,
0: yeah, no, that makes uh, that makes sense to me. I mean, I think that the um, I will say I think the Donbass issue is a little bit uh, murky. You know that it's because, of course. Uh, what we're actually talking about in that case are ethnically Russian people in Ukraine, uh, being shelled as part of a, as part of a civil war that the, um, the kind of, uh, you know, rights and wrongs of that civil war are I think fairly murky, you know, the more you start to, uh, to, to look into it, uh, would be, uh, would be my contention. But, um, but in any case, I uh, really appreciate the call really really uh, really appreciate your point Matthew uh, let's uh, let's get uh, let's get Kusha
1: Hello,
3: good afternoon Ben and good and good afternoon, Bronco. It's a pleasure to be in dialogue with both of you
1: Hi Kusha nice to nice to meet you. Thank you so much.
3: so one of the things that I wanted just start by saying I really appreciate because when I follow um, Ben Burgess's tweets on Twitter, I see how constantly. He emphasizes the belief that he's iterated to me that it's very, very reasonable to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time when it comes to critiquing the U.S. militarism and jingoism and Putin's invasion and other enemy governments in the U.S. And uh, i like this point of a healthy whataboutism, but in the sense that, like, you know, obviously whataboutism can be used as a deflection and it's, it's, it was popularized during the Cold War and whatnot. But being able to raise these questions to be able to get some perspective, to be able to have some greater insight, to be able to have, um, you know, a stronger argument, to be able to chip chips in points, it's, it, it chips in the armor of points, I think it's crucial. And it needs to stop being dismissed so readily. That's not to say that one uh, should not um, be very fervent in their critiques and very direct in their critiques uh, against uh, both the warmongering war criminals. Uh, That being said, what I was really curious to know about, because I think this uh, also um, uh, is uh, very relevant to what's going on, is the censorship of RT, Russia Today. Mm -hmm. And there were two shows on RT that I really liked uh, whenever I saw some segments. One was Chris Hedges' show, On Contact, and he was very um, emphatic about critiquing Putin and the invasion of uh, uh, Ukraine and whatnot. And the other one was the Julian Assange show. I'm not sure how closely either of you watched that one. But there were some great guests that he had on Like when he had uh, Slavoj Žižek on there. And um, he also had uh, Monsef Marzuki, uh, the former Tunisian president, Rafael Correa. And I think what was really interesting to me is the neoconservative sentiment that never really died out. And it's still present since the Iraq war days. Like when uh, Žižek and... Assange were interviewing right-wing extremist David Horowitz. It was somewhat of a mini-debate, and this show was in 2012. Uh, Horowitz was complaining that the U.S. government couldn't even properly occupy Iraq. That was a legitimate grievance of this. He says in, in the video, quote, as we showed in Iraq, we can't even occupy a country, end quote. And then, Assange says something that's so important in response to him, which is, um, Horowitz says... Uh, Quote People are so busy having fun, they don't want to go to war. Americans don't want to go to war. And then Assange interjects and says, America has to be lied into war. And then in that video, if you watch it, Horowitz raises his eyebrows, he pauses for a few seconds, and in a highly surprised fashion, I can't believe the gall. He says, No, it was actually Tony Blair that did that. The fact of the matter is that these issues still need to constantly be litigated in the public discourse because uh, it needs to be called out. The truth. The empirical understanding of truth in the Platonic sense of a material reality that's observable and documented, documented. This is something people, I believe, I think, need to firmly stand for, especially in times of war when there's so much deception, so much publicity, so much uh, manipulation of information. And I really appreciate what you do in this role, Ben, and um, bringing Bronco on to have this discussion. I really love to hear the other reflection that both of you have on these points. Yeah, thank you,
0: Kusha. Uh- yeah, before I throw to Bronco, I, I would just like to say I'm glad you brought up um, the what happened to RT, since that's something that I mean we were just talking about what left you know what left media uh, has or hasn't you know done a good job of emphasizing and the extent to which um, you know we're we're sort of swimming against the stream since most people with with reactionary pro war views obviously aren't getting there. Uh, are still watching TV, right? Uh, which was the point that Bronco made earlier. But I will say that what happened to RT is like very disturbing, and I will I will take my share of the responsibility for this. It's not like I've read anything about it, but I, I think it, I think it probably deserves to be talked about a bit more than it has been uh, because uh, because that's that's a pretty astonishing thing that this network that um, as you say, Kush, I mean, it's not like. Everybody on the network was was pro Putin, you know, very far from it. Um, but it was, you know, for people who are who are watching, you know, TV on uh, Direct TV or whatnot, uh, which is you know, which is an audience that you know that doesn't get very much of this content. You know, it was like one of the sort of biggest platforms for delivering a fair amount of actually pretty good. Commentary that um, you know, Naomi Caravani, who was a guest on Give Them an Argument not that many weeks ago, uh, was a was a um, you know she's a comedian, but you know she's a correspondent on Redacted Tonight on uh, on RT and and had interviewed me on there before um, and it's um, and you know some of it was good and some of it wasn't good and you know and there's and there's certainly things that you can criticize on RT. Although I'd really like to know what network you can't say that about, uh, but just the fact that for straightforwardly political reasons, you know, corporate America just sort of like rolled over and, and like, you know, crushed it in its sleep one night. I mean that that that's you know that's a that's a pretty astonishing thing that happened, and that you know that I think probably merited more outrage than it got. Uh,
1: thanks, Kusha for for. Uh... Those statements and bringing that up, I think it's a really important point. I, I actually uh, am going to be writing a piece about this, not just RT, but a lot of the kind of. Uh, there's been there's been a really uh, staggering kind of acceleration of uh, of information control um, in, in the West in response to this. Uh, that you know, not just involving banning RT, but some of the other stuff that that we've talked about. You know, there was uh, the, the, what you're not allowed and allowed to say is something completely twisted. Uh, you know, now you're allowed to, to call for the uh, the murder of Russians if it's in the context of, of Ukraine. You can uh, praise neo Nazis, uh, specifically the Azov Regiment, as long as it's you know uh, in the context of them non violently defending their country, um, which doesn't doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But yeah, <laughs> there's been a lot of a lot of stuff like that, which I think is really alarming. And, I, and yeah, you're right. I think the um, unfortunately, at that moment when when the bans. On, on RT were happening all over the place. Um, it was that—that was when the the kind of this jingoistic fervor that that took hold was, I think, at its height. And there wasn't really that much appetite. And frankly, there was a lot of other stuff happening. There was so much stuff happening. It doesn't doesn't absolve necessarily. Sure, of course. Um, the press, but but you know, I think uh, I think you're right. Yeah, we sh- we we should and we will uh, cover that a lot more. I think uh, you know two things to, to to keep in mind with the banning of RT is that. There is no outlet, certainly no outlet in the mainstream that is without its share of propaganda, that is without a specific editorial line um, that goes in a particular direction. Um, and uh, there also, there's no argument that you can make anywhere that is not in some way useful to some geopolitical interest. If right. you criticize you know, the United States make completely accurate, uh, factual criticisms of, of, you know, U.S. politics, the U.S. political economy. Um, Of course, that by virtue of looking bad for the United States is going to be used by um, whether Russia or Iran or some other Government and its its state fund and use agency to, to sort of emphasize and, and um, to you know uh, uh, to uh, uh, you know to, to to run down the United States and by virtue by the way all these pieces that come out constantly over the past years about how you know Putin is an evil mastermind and you know this and that about Russia and Putin's funding Nazis. No, no, that's necessarily untrue. Well, I mean, I would take issue with the evil mastermind thing. I think that's <laughs> a, it's a little People, people sort of tend to to kind of weirdly uh, uh, praise Putin, as uh, criticising him. Um, but, but you know, the, the, the bad things you can say about Putin are all true. Um, and by the way, also they're incredibly useful for the Western countries' propaganda. Does that mean not true suddenly? No, of course not. So you know, I think that's important to be in mind. In RT, um, of course, it has an editorial line. So does everything. I mean, CNN and Fox and MSNBC, just for example, uh, all cable news channels. All of them uh, emphasize things that fit the political preference of the particular faction that they're representing. For NSNBC and CNN, it's Democrats. For Fox and the other uh, right-wing channels, it's it's Republican. They emphasize the stuff that that works for them. They de-emphasize the stuff that that, that doesn't. Um, this is Horston. I mean, you know, there was just this Rolling Stone piece that came out uh, today. I think uh, that that went into the details of just how exactly CNN kind of was working the, the, the levers behind the scenes to, you know, to make Trump look bad and to make, uh, you know, which isn't hard, uh, and mm-hmm. to make Andrew Cuomo uh, look good, which which actually does take quite <laughs> a bit of effort. Um, and and you know, the the collusion between like the Cuomo government. Uh, uh, the, the Cuomo administration and, and CNN and, and, and you know not just Cuomo but you could you could really talk about just the the, the, the way that like uh, mainstream journalists in the United States uh, often have a very close relationship with those in power and how they disseminate their messages um, you know it's it, does that mean that CNN should be banned because it's it's you know often kind of government propaganda no of course not and, and neither should RT and not everything that RT did was you know of playing down the the wars as you mentioned Uh, you know rt did a lot of stuff that was you know genuinely good journalism about the the united states um it just uh, happened to be convenient for a rival uh, a a geopolitical adversary um and so and also you know i i think i'm I'm very much dismayed by this whole idea that in order to combat putin uh the governments the countries of the west had to become more like right we have to but more controls on what you can say on the internet. We have to ban channels, even if they're largely pretty marginal, as RT was. The, you know, RT's viewership wasn't anything close to, to the, right. the other cable news networks. Um, uh, yeah, we have to, to ban channels. We have to, you know, uh, we have some certain speech is treasonous, uh, and disloyal, all this stuff. This is this is Putin's stuff. This is what he does. Um, and if if we think that he's bad. Then why on earth are we doing the kind of policies that he that he's implementing over there? It doesn't make a lot of sense. I, I hope this is reversed. The RT ban. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if really Russian-U.S. relations are ever going to uh, go back to even the, the the bad state they were in before the war. Um, so maybe that's that's um, a little yeah. Ridiculous.
0: I mean, I think I think for now the yeah RT-U.S. is 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 just done. You know, maybe if maybe if. Uh, Relations ever change, you know, it can rebuild. But I mean, I think everybody's laid off, and it's uh, it's it's done for now. But uh, but yeah, I mean, certainly, like Putin, like you know, the idea of, uh, and I mean, I'm sure that Putin has done many things like this. You know, uh, you know that uh, if there's some like network, you know, news network that got funded from a Western government. Uh, that was always running, you know, stories really critical of Putin and, you know, he shut it down. You know, I think uh, I think that the Western media would quite rightly be very critical of that. I think that's something you should be critical of. Um, and and it is. And I've got to say, yeah, I mean, like when I see stuff like that rocata tweet, you know, falsely accusing the far left of of not opposing the invasion of Ukraine or. Um, uh, this one, I'm actually not going to. Say the name of the person who did it because I like her and I I I am uh I'm hoping this is a fit of temporary insanity and, and and she uh and she realizes that this is a mistake. But you know, I, there's a uh, there's a you know, progressive political commentator who I saw last night say that uh, uh say that uh, Congress should be investigating uh disinformation uh you know f- like disinformation in the United States you know uh, funded. Uh, you know, funded by, um, you know, funded by Russian oligarchs. Uh, And, and I just couldn't help. It's like, okay, wait a second. So uh, our, I mean, this is something, I mean, look, anybody who, anybody who watched my thing on on Rogan heard me rant about this for a long time. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to repeat it here, you know, but like all, and, you know, we've talked about it before on here, but, all political arguments involve arguments about what's true and what's false. Uh, I can't think of a single exception to that, like a single political issue where at least some of the debate isn't about factual information, what's true and what's false about it. Uh, So, I mean, disinformation just means, you know, there's a factual claim that, you know, that I think is wrong. Uh, And the question is who has the power to, uh, to enforce that. And, I mean, the idea that anybody on even the soft left would be would be calling for, you know, Congress to investigate this is is uh, is incredibly creepy. You know, and and, um, and I'm not sure I, you know, I I guess I don't I I don't have anything to add to uh, uh, to what you just said, except that I think this is I think seeing how this has been playing out is, you know, instance number you know, whatever, 5,403 uh, for, uh, for why the left can't afford not to, uh, not to take free speech seriously. Because, I mean, if, if this is, uh, I mean, if there's a time when it, it's important that people be allowed to speak out against uh, the, you know, the status quo, it's surely at a time when like powerful voices within that status quo literally want to start a war that would end human civilization.
1: I also want to remind people that uh, if you do get internet censorship, you know, if you get a sort of like Putin or, or China-style regime that where everything that goes on the internet is tightly controlled and, and regulated, um, the, the left has no real presence. You know, obviously it, 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 there's activist circles and, and everything and what DSA st- uh, does is very important. But in terms of getting its voice out there, the, the left has no presence on any sort of mainstream outlet, or a very, very, very tiny presence. So you would get rid of basically the entire left-wing media sphere, which uh, depends overwhelmingly on a free internet, and on, on a sort of relatively unregulated internet, where the you know the, the best stuff rises to the top. Uh, uh, that would all be gone, and then all that would be left is you know, New York Times, Washington Post, CNN, <laughs> NBC. Um and then at that point, I mean, that's not particularly a, a reality that I want to live in. Uh, I think we did right. live in it at one point, uh, you know, a few a few decades ago, or even a decade ago. It wasn't that great. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's something to keep in mind when we talk about uh, censorship. Yeah. <laughs> I think that both of
3: you raised some very interesting points when it comes to Um, especially when I think it was Ben mentioned, like, Ro Khanna and his exchange. And you also mentioned uh, Max Blumenthal earlier. And I know the two had, like, an exchange on Twitter when uh, Blumenthal interviewed Ro Khanna. And then Ro Khanna made the allegation that Max Blumenthal was spouting RT talking points and whatnot. Now, of course, um, I think that's a big allegation to make. But I think when it comes to Max Blumenthal's career, I've shared, like, two tweets that pertains to him. He's not one to abstain from making such,
0: yeah. Allegations. I, I mean, like, I mean, look, he's he, he. I mean, making crazy claims about people who who you're arguing with on the internet is is kind of the bread and butter of of the crowd that he's he's in, right? Everybody's a you know, everybody's a CIA agent, whatever. You know, <laughs> that's this is kind of what I was saying about how you yeah. know, you know, Bl- Blumenthal is a clown, right? I don't care about Blumenthal. I do care a lot. Would I see somebody like Rokata like basically accusing the entire far left of being pro-Putin?
3: Do you mind if I give an anecdote? So my dad is in a a leftist party that's in exile from Iran, the band, uh, the Worker Communist Party of Iran. Mm -hmm. He's been a member since I was a kid, since the year of my birth, 1998. And uh, my dad has, um, uh, you know, a a strong member of the party, Mina Haddi. She leads the anti-stoning campaign, the anti-death penalty campaign. She saved people directly through her efforts. She's active in Europe. And so her brother was killed by the Islamic Republic of Iran. Her former husband was killed by the Islamic Republic of Iran. I shared a tweet in here, in this chat, of Max Blumenthal commenting on how she attended a conference. I think it's the second tweet I shared. And he comments on it. It's almost like there's some global network of NATO regime change mascots on September tenth, two 2019. I can't speak for the other people in the picture with her, but Mina had the has never gotten a penny, as far as I know, from NATO. And the U.S. government has no desire to support at all. The U.S. government supports Mujahideen al which is like the terrorist sex cult that worked with Saddam Hussein to crush Kurds in Iraq area, and um, was supportive of the Anfal campaign of Kurdish genocide in the late 1980s Long Saddam. And they fought alongside Saddam against the Islamic Republic of Iran during the war. And they carried out a lot of killings of... Um, Islamic Republic people uh, as well, so they're very uh, unlike throughout. They they had there was sex cult where many of the members had to like divorce their spouses and offer themselves as sexual um, fealty to the to the head of the organization Masoud Rajavi. Um, so yeah, I mean he oftentimes will criticize Mojdeh Khal as this wrong Persian opposition, but she has no connection to that at all. She's with the Worker Communist Party of Iran, which as his values domestically appear pure line, would be in line with her. And she's faced many death threats. She's had to get police protection in Europe uh, as a result of uh, the Islam Republic's threats against her lives. Recently, a movie was made about her, too, if I'm not mistaken, a documentary. And so the fact that he smeared her so easily as a name yeah. change mascot. And then on the other hand, when someone like Rokana does it, he gets outraged, you know? There's no yeah, yeah, yeah. to this No, <laughs> sure, sure. I mean, again... I... Another tweet. That, he had, that
0: I Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I, I mean. I certainly take, I certainly take the point. I mean, about about uh, about Max Blumenthal. I mean, I think the last time uh, he was really on my radar before this uh, was was when he was at the um, the the Cory Bush uh, uh, yeah. the you know housing protest, like sort mm-hmm. of uh, heckling the protesters. You know, which is literally the least helpful thing you could possibly do. But again. Uh, Person with zero uh, you know, influence in the real world versus uh, versus sitting U.S. congressman would be the point I would make. But I do, want to, uh, I do want to go on just for the sake of time. Thank you so much. All, Thank right. So much. All right. Thank you, Kusha. Uh, I do want to hit uh, – because I, I know we want to get off in a few minutes. So I do want to hit uh, – Aaron, are you here, Aaron? All right Aaron, if you don't see it there's at the bottom of the screen there's a there's a little, little microphone thing you have to hit to mute yourself hmm. okay well, if you figure it out please do uh, please do get back in uh in the queue but uh while we're uh waiting for that to get sorted out, I did want to make sure that uh that before uh before we left for today, Bronco that we talked about. Uh the uh the piece that you wrote uh before last for Jacobin, which is called uh Turning Ukraine into another Afghanistan would be a um uh would be a dangerous idea. And I was I was hoping you could uh just speak to that for a minute and then particularly um, you know, with reference to like if you think this is a particularly bad idea, does that mean that people should oppose, um, you know, arming Ukraine, which might be maybe the form of, of Western, um, you know, intervention that that many people would have the least problem with? Because you know, after all, if you're just arming people who are fighting off an invasion, you know, there's a certain like obvious case you can make for that, and and why you know, like kind of what the the point was of that piece.
1: Well, this is a uh, idea that unfortunately seems to be kind of shaping up to to be the uh, end game um, of, of what's going to happen in Ukraine, um, and it's uh, basically that that Russia will end up being bogged down in a quagmire in Ukraine that's similar to the the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, or, or similar to the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan or the the invasion of Iraq, um, where it's uh, left to kind of occupy the country and kind of um, uh support or prop up this uh the this compliant government um but at the same time fights a a an insurgency that wants of other country and and you know we saw what happened to the United States when it did that in Iraq and Afghanistan the results weren't exactly pretty for the United States and the idea is that this would cost uh Russia dearly as well along with obviously all the um sanctions and the other economic costs being imposed on it now why is that a bad idea, I mean, number one, I think we can all agree, and I think any sensible, decent human being on earth can agree that the main concern here is is the welfare of the Ukrainians themselves um, who are who are being you know killed and, and bombed and shot at right now. Uh, what would happen if, if, if we turn Ukraine to Afghanistan? Well, they would be bombed and shot at and, and repressed and, and beaten up and, and everything else um for you know five eight ten twenty years however long it's gonna go on for um you know look at what the uh post you know post regime change uh life was like for iraqis and, and and afghans um and it was not pretty uh and in fact it was so not pretty that it led uh afghans to uh on mass to go you know we'd rather actually go with these um brutal fundamentalists than than to have this invasion continuing. Um, so it would just lead to more death, more suffering, more poverty, because of course, you know, all this fighting is going to lead to to endless destruction of infrastructure and disruption of economic activity. Um, now, what are the costs for the West? Um, well, on, on the one hand, uh and and you know, this this is now sort of one of these things that people are trying to make a forbidden thing to say that if you say it because it vaguely sounds like the the pretext Putin has given for the yes. invasion then therefore this is just Kremlin propaganda that's complete nonsense we should reject this very firmly um Putin's whole thing that he went in to denazify Ukraine it's it's completely a pretext it's propaganda however just because Ukraine does not happen to be completely governed by a Nazi government does not mean that there is not a serious problem with the far right in Ukraine, and that the far right is not, in fact, integrated um, in in parts of its armed forces. Uh, you know, it's it's police in some cases, um, and you know, maybe not in parliament. Definitely not in parliament. The the far right has not done very well in elections, but they have a very um, effective street presence. They have they they're, they're kind of like a horrible dark version of DSA where they're very well organized and they're able to kind of shift <laughs> politics, except in this case, politics into a horrible direction uh, of, of genocide and murder instead of, you know, um, you know loving and respecting everyone and, and making sure that no one dies of hunger or, or not, have, not having healthcare. Um, so there, there is, a, is a real problem with with, with uh, far-right uh, forces in Ukraine. And, and when these weapons are being flooded, as as they will continue to do, because part of the way that you make this insurgency keep going instead of having the war come to a a, a halt it requires that western weapons uh, weapons from nato countries from the united states continue flowing in um and uh they are going to inevitably end up in the hands of some far-right forces they already are we already we know this for a hundred percent and we've seen (laughs) tweets from from nato itself, um, you know, pointing out that, that that the Azov Regiment, the neo-Nazi militia that's in the Ukrainian National Guard has gotten some of these weapons. Um, think about what happened in Afghanistan in the 80s when the U.S. found it very convenient to, to fund Islamic fundamentalists uh, to fight the Soviet Union, to, to arm and train them. What happened a few decades later? Uh, you know, th- there is a very real risk of something similar happening because right now, even before this war, Ukraine was a hotspot for far-right people all over the world to travel, to, to sort of get training, to, to make contact with the far-right in Ukraine, to learn from them. Now that's sort of been you know, pushed to 100 because now they actually, they're going there uh, and, and they're, they're getting combat, uh, actual on-the-ground combat experience that they hope to bring back to the United States, to Western Europe, to New Zealand, to wherever they're coming from. Um, that's a very dangerous thing because the far right terrorist threat at the moment in the United States, it, it, it's, it's quite small. It really isn't, right. isn't as big of a problem as people think it is. It, it, it's a very, it's a very scary thing. It's very viscerally, uh, uh, it affects you, but it's, it's still quite small. Um, but that's not to say that it couldn't become worse. Um, so that's another, that's another aspect of it, you know, also, the longer that this war goes on, um, it will continue to have economic disruption, even if sanctions are at some point lifted, which I can't imagine they would be if Russia is fighting a, uh, an insurgency in Ukraine for, you know, uh, potentially decades. Um, you're still talking about Ukraine, one of the uh, 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 most important suppliers of wheat in the world, um, you know, basically becoming a war zone what, you know, that just means a, a, a bunch of countries in Africa, in North Africa and the Middle East, suddenly uh, see their food prices spike, suddenly, uh, you know, don't have food supplies. Uh, people are already predicting, you know, the World Bank economist, the other chief economist, the other, the other day predicted that um, there will be sort of more Arab Spring-style revolts because, of course, that was a big part of why the Arab, Arab Spring um, erupted was, was uh, you know, hunger. Um, and, uh, you know, that's not exactly good for the United States. It's now, now there's going to be a whole bunch of global instability and fires that has to, you know, somehow deal with or try and put out or, you know, react to, um, so, you know, and, and then you go into the, the issue of inflation and, and oil and, and all these other kind of, you know, Ukraine supplies, a bunch of important minerals that go into, uh, manufacturing a whole, a whole suite of products. Um, prices are going to go up there, you know, I mean, people are already complaining about inflation, it's just going to get worse if if this endless war continues and then you've got along with that the fact that the, in this case the the quagmire we're talking about again involves a, a, a directly a nuclear power and an indirectly a whole heap of other nuclear powers um and so all of these things that we've seen where this war has almost kind of gone to a um you know gone scarily close to some sort of nuclear exchange um at least you know the closest in my lifetime that i've seen um, there, there's endless opportunities. The longer this war goes on, for something like that to happen, for you know, mistakes, misfires, misunderstandings to to happen, um, you know, for for conflict to spread beyond Ukraine's borders and sort of draw in other NATO countries. Um, think about some of the things we've seen over the past few weeks. There was the 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 fighting over the um the 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 nuclear power plant, the largest in Europe, and, and I think south uh, southeastern Ukraine. There was the the uh, another nuclear scare that happened uh just uh was it today or yesterday um the who uh you know as Reuters reported that the who had warned you know the ukrainians to to destroy the the stuff they had in their biological research labs um because if if you know an accident happened in the middle of war, which very often happens in war. God knows what would be released from those things, and, and God knows what that would mean for not just Ukraine but but the entire world. And and again, I have to repeat: the longer this war goes on, the more and more chance there is for something like that to to happen. Um, so, for all of these things, you know, the best thing here is not to fuel an endless insurgency because we think that it's going to impose all these costs on Russia. Um, which, by the way, when we talk about imposing costs on Russia, we're talking about. Uh, Russian conscripts and sort of Russian soldiers who just, like U.S. soldiers, they join the army because it's often a a kind of point of national pride and career advancement. It's them getting killed. That's what we're talking about when we talk about costs. Um, Instead of of that, you know, we need to push for what a lot of serious foreign policy voices were calling for before the uh, invasion and now, a negotiated political settlement Um, ideally one involving the U.S., where the U.S. offers to lift sanctions in in exchange for Russia agreeing to to certain things, uh, withdrawing troops, obviously, but maybe also giving up some of its more maximalist demands that's that's, um, uh, uh, demanding of of Zelensky right now. That's really the only solution here that's not going to lead to more uh, disaster. It doesn't sound very sexy because people want want to fight. It doesn't sound good that this war is responded to with a... Some sort of political settlement but you know it, it's not about looking tough and 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 you know feeling satisfied it's about stopping chaos and death and destruction um and and you know it, it's very marked to me that that this solution this idea of, of a political settlement that involves the united states it, it's for some reason this is considered in western discourse more unserious and ridiculous then the this idea of making Ukraine a, a an Afghanistan a permanent war zone uh, on Europe's doorstep. I mean, really think about how, how crazy that is.
0: Yeah. Um and I mean on the point about far right terrorism, uh certainly the analogy with the original Afghanistan should give anybody pause on that. Um, that uh you know, having uh the you know, the way that the uh, the United States support for uh, you know for the Mujahideen uh ended up uh end up backfiring in that case. Uh, so uh so Bronco, it is uh it is six thirty two. Uh I was planning on probably being done by now. I do see one of the caller. Uh do you, do you have one more in you?
1: Let's do one more, but then it's going to be really quick because I. Uh, all <laughs> so right. Yeah. All these pieces I mentioned, I do.
0: I'll
1: skip the lecture about the history of NATO expansion and the history of U.S.-Russia tensions. Uh, people can look that up, uh, you know, on their own time, I guess.
0: All right, fair so, enough. Uh, so, uh, Mateo, let's uh, let's let's quickly hear from you, and then we'll uh, then we'll wrap this up. Hey, uh,
4: gentlemen. Uh, so. I don't know many things. I'm I'm not going to I'm not going to pretend to be the best uh, armchair psychologist of Putin and what he's thinking. But one thing I do know for sure from the research I've done is there's zero chance he's going to not physically respond in Odessa to the image, which he's kind of used as a cause of And that was the uh, the left wing kids who he really shares no politics with and exist in an imaginary political space. That were roasted uh, May early May 2014. Putin is going to have some kind of violent, destructive revenge for the fire that killed uh, those wayward communist youth, uh, and there's there's no point in negotiating until he has that moment of revenge. Isn't that your impression?
1: Uh, I I don't think so. I mean, look, I'm looking at what is it that he's been demanding from from the start of this.
4: Well, no, what he's been, simple, what he but, was doing when he was demanding stuff, he was mocking the U.S. demands in 2003. Obviously, when he said denazification and demilitarization. Well,
1: that's not. Hold on, that's not the, the demand, though. The demand. That he was, he was. Those making, were the words, and it was exactly. Well, that was the, the that was the
4: that was the speech he gave. That
1: was the speech he gave where he sort of explained himself, which again is a speech meant for domestic consumption partly. Um, but I mean, the demands have been pretty consistent throughout the months that were leading up to this, which is he wanted. A, a guarantee that, that that Ukraine would not join NATO. And, well, it's a justified
4: uh, No, he used those terms very specifically, and it was very justified trolling of the U.S. statement about debatification and demilitarization 19 years ago. He very consciously loves to mock the West and use our words against us in a sarcastic, bad faith way. That's one thing Putin has done consistently for right. all 30 years or so. He's been a public figure, correct?
1: But the question is: Is that what he actually wants? You're talking about he's using it to mock the West, okay? But you're, and you acknowledge that of, you can
4: see it. You're smart enough to see it, even if your audience. Well, is in well, terms right? of
1: well, let me let me finish for a second. Uh, you're saying that that's to mock the West, okay? But that in terms of actually what he what he wants, uh, I, I think the thing he wants is a thing that he keep he's. Insisting from Zelensky as well now, which is what he wants—a neutral Ukraine, um, basically a Ukraine that's not part of NATO, that's not part of the, the, the Western bloc. Um, and, but and that's of a lie. Here,
4: what he wants is revenge. That's what this is about. I don't he think. I don't think he does
1: because because the if you look at actually what he was a demanding until the lead up of this, this is way he was talking about. If you look at the same speech, in fact, by the way, the the public speech that so everyone points to the denazification and and they talk about the. Um, it's a written document. The, in the It's a
4: written you know, document the... before it's a speech, right? Five... everyone uh, talks about in...
1: the Ukrainian, the, 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 the return to Russian imperialism, blah 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 blah. Okay, but then the second half of that speech is it's, he talks about NATO and he and he mentions NATO more than forty times.
4: Yeah, but uh, it's the same. It's the same KGB lying playbook that Putin always says. Putin,
1: I'm sorry, no, 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 that's completely wrong. No, so, the the this is this is one of the most pernicious kind of talking points now. Is that that this whole thing about NATO is just a, is just a, a some sort of Kremlin propaganda thing? No, the William Burns, the current CIA director of of Biden, he, he himself wrote in the nineties how uh, provocative uh, the the entire Russian establishment across the political spectrum found the idea of expanding NATO.
4: It's not just so then him. why do they let Turkey play diplomat right now? Turkey's a NATO state. Why don't they go to war with Turkey if Turkey is using TB2s? Well, Turkey, against itself is sort of,
1: Turkey itself is sort of, you know, uh, charting a a, a a particular course that's, you know, even though it's a NATO member, it's it's not quite, you know, completely uh, hasn't been singing to the to the West cheering into the US year. Uh, not just William Burns, but you can go down to like George Kennan, of course, is, is the one that often gets brought up. But there are literally uh, Jack Matlock, the former Soviet, uh, the former U.S. ambassador to the Soviet Union when it was dissolving. I mean, there are uh, dozens upon dozens of, of, of establishment figures who have talked about how this is a provocative thing for, for Russia. And by the way, it's not just them. In it, you can find a diplomatic cable in two thousand and eight, shortly before George Bush made this foolish blunder uh, decision to say Ukraine and Georgia are going to join NATO. When I mean, he said it in the speech that year. Earlier that year, there is a diplomatic cable uh, sent back to the United States, where it relays what Sergey Lavrov, the current foreign minister, was saying. Uh, and uh, what he said was that, you know, look, we get, we get, every every government gets to, or every country gets to, to join an alliance that wants to. We understand that, but just so you know, we do consider this quite a provocation. We consider it quite a threat to our security, and so we are asking you not to do this, because we. We we would find that quite provocative. No, anyway.
4: my question and for you, Branco, and for most sure. of the apologists of Putin over the years is No 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 hold quite on quite, no, 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 no. Okay. now now
1: when you say that now that is absolutely unacceptable. Do not say that I'm apologizing for it. I at the very start of this recording, I made sure to, to explain why despite whatever the legitimate security concerns there are involved, it of course doesn't justify the fact that he's now invading and brutalizing these people as, you know, basically bullying them to get his way. And, and to be honest, again, I would ask you, if you think that is some sort of excuse or justification for what Putin's doing, why in the hell do you believe that? Because it absolutely isn't. That's, in fact, Putin's logic. Putin would say, no, I am justified to bully and brutalize these people because of what the West has done to me. That's your position, apparently. That's not the position of anyone who I think is a sane and decent human being. So, no, do not bring that trash in here accusing people we can have a debate we can have a reasonable debate between normal human beings but when you start throwing around shit like that that is not okay
0: yeah right? yeah you, you you can't uh i am going to draw the line at uh at putin apologist um if uh I'm, I'm happy to i'm happy to have people argue about what's um about what the causes are of the invasion, about what, if anything, could have been done to prevent it, about whether, in fact, you know, we should be uh, trying to flood uh, Ukraine with weapons and turn it into a long-term insurgency. I'm happy to argue about all those things, but I mean, I I think if you don't start that from the baseline of taking people's word when they say they're not secretly pro-Putin, I think it's very difficult to have a conversation uh, so, uh, so, Branko, um, hey,
1: we I, should have I, called that one early.
0: Yeah, yeah, we, we, we should have uh, we should have called that one one earlier than, uh,
1: than we did. Let, let me just say one one thing. Here, yeah. here's, here's what I'll say. Look, I, obviously, none of us can guarantee that if there is some sort of negotiation and there's some sort of settlement around Ukraine's entry into NATO, that that's going to like you know change Putin's behavior. I cannot guarantee it. I think it's most likely that it would. Um, but, but I don't know, there's no absolute guarantee. But here, here's the fundamental point. Why don't we try it? Because it has not been tried. But for, for decades now, the, the, the entire Russian establishment, not just Putin, but also Putin, have been saying this thing. And the, the, the Western, and specifically the US response has been, well, you know, too bad basically, we're gonna do whatever we want. So why don't we at least try it and then we can move on from there if, if that doesn't end up working. Um, but of course, you know, that's not even part of the conversation because people like that final uh, last caller decide that, that, uh, that's simply, you know, somehow making some sort of apologetics for Putin, uh, which is part of the toxic discourse that makes it impossible to, to argue for anything sane in, uh, in U.S. policy right now, unfortunately.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, look, I, I think I'm far enough from being a Putin apologist that ideally I would like to live in a world where, um, uh, someday, you know, where uh, where both Putin and, and George W. Bush were uh, were put on uh, on trial uh, in the Hague for uh, for the supreme war crime, you know, f- uh, which is defined by the Nuremberg standard as uh, aggressive war. Uh, but I I would just really question whether we're getting closer or further from that world of robust international institutions that could hold great powers to account. Uh, if we you know have. By having a world where, um, you know, wars are being dragged on, uh, where, you know, where great powers are on the brink, where we have, um, you know, where we spurn opportunities to have negotiated settlements in favor of, you know, years more war, etc. I, I mean, all of that seems to me takes us in the opposite direction.
1: I, I completely agree. I mean, I think one of the tough things about this whole thing is that, and, and this is part of the kind of backlash that, that that's uh, hit uh, Miersheimer, is that, you know, I think realism, realpolitik, uh, it's obviously not a great way to, for the world to function. And mm-hmm. I think we have to try it as much as possible to discourage that kind of thinking and to move away from it. But it is the fact that because there is no real independent institutions that stand outside great powers... Uh, that kind of can act as a referee on the world stage, we're sort of in this, we, we live in a in a realist system, or at least in a quasi-realist system, where international law is an important thing. And and, and we're seeing that now with some of the response to, the, to what Putin's done. But it's also, you know, a tool of of, of the powerful. And unfortunately, we have to try and somehow, yeah, we, yeah. Chomsky did an interview recently where he said, you know, there isn't really not, that much time to redesign this system. Uh, we have to just try and strengthen it as much as we can, uh, you know, before things get too bad. So it's, it's tough. It's really tough.
0: Yeah. Fair enough. Uh, so I will, uh, bide. uh, we do have to add the, uh, we do have to add the episode now, but, um, uh, I, I promise I will do one of these on, uh, on Sunday. And if you call it then, I will take your call first.
2: Yeah, that sounds good. I was just here to, uh, apologize for Putin to everyone.
4: <laughs>
2: I have a little bouquet and I have a, a nice, one of those nice little Russian fur hats. Uh, so I'm sorry. I'll just, I'll lead off next time on Sunday. With
0: that. Uh, all right. You could, you could deliver all of your apologies for, uh, for Putin there. Uh, who um, I think, uh, you know, I, I was saying this on the post game on, uh, on on Monday with Nathan Robinson that I think for a variety of reasons, uh, you know, just just to get all personal and tribalistic about this for a second, as a uh, uh, as as a you know, secular cosmopolitan type who uh, who is descended from people who had to leave the Russian Empire under bad circumstances, there are a variety of reasons why I think that the sort of like revanchist you know Russian Orthodox. Uh, Pan-Slavic nationalism would probably not be my cause if I started to be an apologist for some reactionary cause, but um, but you know. But in any case, uh, we will we will of course entertain Putin apologetics on Sunday. Sounds fun. Thank you again, Bronco. Uh,